Welcome to the Man Talk Show. I'm Connor Beaton, and joining me today is a guest that has been on the show before. His name is Stephen Jenkinson. And if you didn't have a chance to listen to our last conversation, I would strongly recommend that you go find it, especially if you enjoy this one. So in this interview, uh, Stephen and I actually did this interview live. I hosted a series a little while ago called the Wisdom of Elder series, and we decided to release the audio from it where I brought together elders to talk about our current times, the challenges that we're facing societally, culturally. And Stephen is one of one of the most profound orators, in my opinion. He has a master's degree from Harvard University in theology. He has a university degree from uh, the U of, University of Toronto uh, in social work. And he spent years and years and years in what he refers to as, as the death trade supporting people who were at the very end of their life in palliative care. So in this conversation, we don't necessarily talk about death. We talk about mentorship. We talk about the culture and the society that we're living in and what's causing the erosion of the social fabric and the cultural fabric that we inhabit. And Stephen does a very good job of describing our modern times through the view of somebody who has lived many decades and has seen a few different generations come to pass. And he does a good job of describing what a lot of men are going through right now and how we can, uh, as individuals, as men, as husbands, as fathers, as leaders, but also as women, step into a more robust understanding of the changing times and how we ready ourselves for not only the future, but how we ready ourselves for the present that we are inhabiting. Because for many people, one of the challenges that they are struggling with is that their current reality, the, the current present moment that they are inhabiting is very challenging to deal with. And when we face these kinds of challenges, socially, politically, with our governments, environmentally, economically, these are generally moments in time where we rely heavily on elders within our communities, whether that community is a religious community, a secular community. That's generally where we look to elders to say, okay, how do we navigate this territory? What do we, what do, we do? And from Stephen's words, elders are the individuals who are truth carriers. They are the truth speakers. They are the ones that are tasked with the burden, honor, et cetera, of speaking the truth about what's happening in the moment. And so that's what this episode is all about. I don't know how else to describe it outside of that. So I found it to be a very profound conversation. We talk about elderhood. We talk about the, the decay and breakdown of society. We dig into uh, masculinity and some of the roles of men and how that's shifted and a number of other topics uh, like the, I think we talk about death at one point and, and how it relates to the decay that we're experiencing in society, how we don't want to know limitations. So there's some very profound moments in here. I hope that you listen to this with a friend, family member, your partner. Uh, don't forget to share this episode with somebody that that you think will enjoy it. Don't forget to recommend it. And uh, please head on over to whatever platform you're listening to us on, especially if you listen to us on Apple, and leave us a rating and review that goes a long way into getting these episodes into the ears and phones of other people. I've, I've been getting a lot of comments on YouTube because we've been putting up all of our 
all of our interviews are, I'm doing on video now, and I've been putting all these video interviews up on YouTube. And it's a very common theme that's emerging. It's like, how do these videos, how do these interviews and these mini episodes not have more views, more comments, and more likes? So if you enjoyed these episodes and you, you want to see them live or you want to watch them, uh, you can definitely head on over to YouTube and find us on their Man Talks, the Man Talks channel on YouTube. Without any further delay, please welcome Mr. Stephen Jenkinson. Well, Stephen, thank you so much for, for being here. And I actually feel quite fortunate. I've had the selfish pleasure of speaking with you a number of times now in the last couple months. And that is by design in some ways. I came across your work and was immediately struck and found that you were saying things that I both needed, wasn't sure what to make of, and yet I, I just found myself with such a, a curiosity to, to hear more. And that's a rarity for me in some ways, not to sound arrogant or anything like that, because I don't pretend to be a, you know, intellect of any sorts. But I think the manner in which you speak has struck me. And the things that I hear you talking about feel warm, you know, like I'm around a campfire and it's something that's been missing in a way. And I've been fortunate enough to have elders show up in my life at crucial moments, crucial moments in my life. And so I owe a debt to elders in some ways. So I thought long and hard about how I wanted to start this conversation, of course. And I thought I would just begin by maybe just handing you the torch and saying, you know, if I can put a, aside my sort of adolescent ignorance and arrogance, and just sort of say, where do we begin in these conversations of elders? What does it even look like? You know, do we start by defining it? Do we start by defining what's been missing? So I thought I would just hand that over to you. And then, of course, I, I do have some more directed questions, but I wanted to just hand that over to you first. Well, I think you begin the way somebody who falls overboard begins. It means you start swimming, but you're not at the shore, right? And so you swim, you could swim in a grid pattern, but it would wear you out. You could swim in circles pretending this is the new age solution to being, to drowning, only to discover you'll drown. Or you could make for something that looks stable in a shifting circumstance, right? And do everything you can to imitate the water spider on your best moments. You know, a master of surface tension. That's my recommendation, generally speaking, is that you don't, do you understand you don't begin at any kind of beginning, at any, in any orderly fashion? Why not? Well, because we're not talking about something that prevails. You know, though I'm, I don't pretend to know exactly where we're headed in the next hour and a half, but I know for sure if the word elderhood appears in the job description of the next 90 minutes at all, we don't know what we're talking about. It doesn't prevent us from talking in a sort of intelligent fashion, but the moral intelligence of the endeavor is the acknowledgement that you begin in a deficit position if you're a North American. And I, I mean, other people can include themselves in that deficit if they like, but I won't include them. But I'm saying that if we were, if we were riffing our experience with elderhood, everything would be different. Our orientation, probably we, you wouldn't be having this session, by the way, and probably you might not have a gig and I'd be right behind you in the unemployment line, possibly. But, uh, you know, our, our endeavor is a consequence of our poverty. So my routine recommendation is you begin with the impoverishment. And, you know, it takes a number of forms, but I'll give you, I'll give you one example. Years ago, I was asked if I would come and appear at an event they call the Prayer Festival. 
So that was really a compelling idea to me, the notion that you could put the word prayer and festival together and that you wouldn't have rave as a consequence of it. So I said, what have you got in mind besides the obvious? And he said, well, we got people from all the world's religions, which in downtown Toronto is a fairly easy thing to accomplish. And I said, and me? They said, yeah, and you? I said, well, who do I represent in your minds, you know? And they said, uh, they paused and they realized they hadn't thought about this before. And they said, uh, well, everybody else. <laughs> in other words, I'm uh, representing the Balkan states or some kind of disaffected, disenfranchised, disorganized religion, you could say. So I took that as an encouragement. And you can already hear the poverty announcing itself, right? I got there and they whisked us off into the VIP room, which was the janitor's room in the facility. And they were feeding everybody the generic vegetarian fare that goes with an event like this, which is deeply disappointing. But, you know, you don't go there for the food. And there was only one seat left. It was beside the, the Tibetan Lama who had the, you know, real bad vaccine mark on his arm and they had the whole outfit. And, you know, I had cool guy, cool stuff envy right away because I had nothing to compare with his outfit. And I sat down because I had no idea if he could speak English and my Tibetan's a little rusty. So eventually I risked it all because we were both eating silently. And I looked over to him and I said, what do you think of the food? <laughs> and he, without no hesitation whatsoever, he said, not too good. I said, okay. So I, I'm in the presence of somebody who's brotherish. Just I'm going to risk it all and imagine that we have something in common already. We're at this event. We find ourselves very strangely here and we're disappointed with the fair. It's a good start. I said, yeah, and I missed the meat. You know, I went all out at this point. I missed the meat. He said, I miss it too. He said, at home, you know, you don't, you don't eat meat. You die in the wintertime. Well, that's not untrue of where I live as well. So we're batting a thousand here. And then was another maybe one or two lines and he stopped and he put everything down and he swivels his chair to look at me very directly. So it was clear it wasn't a casual moment for him. And he said to me, why do you teach? Presuming I did and obviously troubled at this question. Now, you don't picture, at least I didn't, a Tibetan Lama being troubled really about anything. Like they have the market cornered on equanimity, right? Or so you'd think naively. Why do you teach? And I said, there's a much longer version of the story, but it's your show. So I'll just end it by saying, um, I said to him, why do you ask? And he gestured in a kind of almost impotent gesture towards the room that was waiting for us to appear and towards the greater world. And he said, they eat teachers here. Now, he could have put the word elders in there and he would have been as accurate as he was with his observation. So can you imagine a guy who's lived through the Chinese invasion of his country and everything that ensues from that and the homelessness, which is professionalized into teaching at various facilities across the Western world, instead of being at home, you know, with his, with his own kin. He lived all of that, survived it in some fashion, and is unnerved to the point of being undone by the likes of us who come to a prayer festival to feast upon the bounty of the world's religions. And he knew it. He knew that's what he was facing. And I've never forgotten that moment. The, the kind of dissolution of the, of the spirit that he was contending with as a consequence of the rank, unmitigated spiritual hunger of the West.
which means nobody no good, which promises nothing and takes everything it can find. And you know, there is a, there's a statement in the trade that goes something like this. Many a person who is starving mistakes many a thing for food, which is not, including the purveyor of food or the vendor or the offerer or the cook, right? Just take a finger. And so on. And the reason I'm mentioning the story, and I'll turn it over to you, is because the very thing has happened again here through the email just in the last day or two, where a young person has decided I'm somehow accountable to this young person because they're a young person. And then I have to account for the location and the, the derivation and the heredity of my quote-unquote teachings, as if I had such a thing, as if I had a systematic program, an orthodoxy of a kind that I'm proliferating, uh, you know, without benefit of being sponsored by central command, you see? And it's just, it's more of the same, baby. And, uh, you know, this is the flip side of me saying that people of my generation have, let's say, morally speaking, underfunctioned in the extreme during the time of their majority. And the flip side is not inevitably that somebody half my age has got it figured out because they're about to inherit a world made much worse by the likes of my generation. It qualifies nobody, but you'd never know it from this email exchange. So I've been disinvited from a T because I won't, quote, be accountable as to where my stuff comes from. And here's the PS on the story. The notion is that somehow because I look like I do and I don't have the ethnic quotient as people would normally understand the term, and because I don't have a funky lineage, and because I have no exoticism, by definition, anything I come up with has to be derived from somebody else's something. Inherently, I'm an appropriator. See, that's where it's coming from. And the disgrace of that is beyond describing. It reminds me, it goes right back to the, uh, the days when I was being interrogated by the director of Reefwalker, when he says to me, basically, he attributes everything I'm talking about to indigenous people as if it's inconceivable that somebody who looks like me had some capacity, right? But it is conceivable. And people who look like me have to deal with the real possibility that people who look like me are capable too and are obliged to be capable and have to cultivate that capability, you know, without being a pirate or a thief. Okay, so I've got that off my chest. Away we go. Just, just a light entrance into the conversation. Yeah, wonderful, wonderful. Big, I can see. big mistake. You turned it over to me. <laughs> I love it. I I appreciate the the candidness. And you know, I think part of what I hear you speaking about is a a kind of and correct me as I'm sure you will if I'm wrong, but a kind of spiritual bankruptcy that is pervasive within Western culture, but also a a deep sort of seeking, you know, I think there's some data or research that came out lately that was talking about how something like 42% of Americans are, are spiritual, but non-religious. Right. Yeah. And, right. um, and so there's, there's certainly a, a longing for something in there. And, uh, you know, I guess to sort of piggyback on that, the question that I had was, you know, you talk about this poverty of elderhood, and I'm wondering if you can speak about what, brought that about, you know, brought that poverty about and, and what do we miss out on individually, culturally, from a communal standpoint of not having that archetype or energy or figure within our cultures? Yeah, I'll begin with uh, the preamble just before your question proper, please. 
you characterize the current regime as longing for something spiritual. I would counter that by saying I wish that were true, which is to say that I'm suggesting that there is a quality of longing that's actually missing. And I would use a different word to describe what you're talking about, which I'm not a stranger to, by the way. I, I certainly am alert to what you're talking about. But I would call it desire and not longing. And here's why. What is the, the career path of desire, if you will? What's its, what's its MO? How does it work? Well, the reason that desire is so often referred to as a kind of hunger with all of the metaphors that surround that, including what the Tibetan was talking about, is because desire would appear on the surface to seek after its satisfaction. There's actually a thing we call the object of one's desire, be it a human or, you know, Chinese food or anything in between. I say the, the PR on desire is very effective. It's trying to satisfy itself so that it doesn't have to desire anymore and it can finish. But that's something like imagining that the career path or the career goal of childhood is to stop being a child and nothing could be further from the truth. Once you are a child, baby, it doesn't get any better than that because you are with no moral trouble, the center of the universe. And it's quite easy to engineer in North America being the center of the universe and it pays. It also costs wretchedly, but it certainly pays. Desire is the same way because you know what happens. Of course you do. When you rub up against the object of your desire, there's the cessation of desire for a while while you revel and marvel in the discovery and set your timer. Now set your timer and wait. Sooner or later, the object of your desire will disappoint you. You never do the disappointing. You're always disappointed. You know how it works? Whether it's a teacher or a romantic, you know, partner or whoever it is. And eventually your desire starts to roll out of the wings and rise up, you know, through your feet or between your legs or wherever it comes from. And before you know it, it's phase two or phase 127 of your desire. So you get the point. Desire doesn't really stop. It's, its cover story is I'm trying to stop, but it never does. The difference between that and longing is this. You can be in the presence of what you long for and your longing ceases not at all. In fact, doesn't even moderate by any appreciable degree. You can long after the person you're with. You see, because longing is not trying to stop. Because longing is a grief-endorsed skill of knowing the inherent limitations of the arrangement. And that you go in, if you will, open-eyed about the frailty and the limits and the endings that ensue to any of our projects. That's what longing is. It's the, it's the adult scaled capacity to know the unwelcome things about what you seek after. Okay? So with that as a background to my answer of your question, in place now, I would say this. The question basically is, what the fuck happened? Yeah, Isn't it? basically, basically that, yeah, that's, <laughs> that's pretty, it. That's pretty much it. Yeah, what the fuck happened? Yeah. Um, okay, okay. So I'm guessing the following did not happen. That there was a, a meeting called somewhere, I don't know, 75 years ago, something like this. And a lot of people sat around the room and said, right then, we're here to discuss whether or not we're going to continue to go along with this elder thing. Now, you know, it's had its upside. But honestly, there's a lot of people waiting in the wings for recognition. 
and for their turn, you know, add glory and everything like this. And uh, could we agree that we're done with the elder experiment? Do I think such a thing happened? Nope. In other words, there's been, you could say, eclipse of the elder function, but I don't think that's accurate. I think it's better to say collapse. Some kind of active degradation of the undertaking has taken place with nobody agreeing for it to happen, but nobody particularly getting in the way of this collapse. The best way I could illustrate that is to give you a feel for the malady would be, you know, I'm old enough to remember a time when people would say routinely, in the presence of the kids of whom I was one, respect your elders. And very often it was said as a corrective. So that tells you there was already something up when respect your elders is a course correction instead of a description. But there was a time when it was a description of the prevailing psychological and civil weather when it came to the gen relationship between the generations, right? But something's missing in the formulation is the problem. Because I can, I can just imagine people who are listening to me right now, rolling their eyes. Here we go with the friggin' inevitable respecting and blah, blah, blah. Just hold on a second. Because I inhale doesn't mean I'm finished. Okay, there's more to it than that. So it goes like this. There's something missing. And the parallel would be, there's something missing from the formulation, money's the root of all evil. And the fact that there's something missing and that it's routinely left out tells you that the money is the root of all evil thing is the more preferred version. Why? Because it's easier to act on. It's easy to demean and diminish and demonize money than it is to be faithful to the actual quote from the Bible, which says, it's the love of money that's the root of all evil, pointing you in the direction of your relationship to it, not the thing itself. By the same token, there's something missing from the formulation, respect your elders. And I'm going to just propose it it would have gone something like this. Respect your elders as they carry themselves respectably. See? But once upon a time, that didn't have to be said because it was part and parcel of being an elder that you did so. Okay. So it no longer describes anything to say, respect your elders. And it doesn't happen either. So there's nothing to advocate. There's nothing to return to. That shit is officially gone. Okay, and it's not coming back in any recognizable form because the kind of the underbelly of respect your elders is why the fuck should I? Okay, who are they to me? What have they done for me lately? Etc. Okay, so that snarling resentment that's taking care of whatever residual elder function might have, you know, been able to hold on for dear life. You know, I should say I'm talking about the little corner of the Western world that I know something about. It's really important that I not be understood to be generalizing across any, you know, big population or part of the world or, or what. But I certainly think what I'm talking about is accurate there. So, so what happened? Nobody noticed what happened until it had happened, until it was really in the saddle. I mean, there's, there's a lot of sociological observations to make, including the Industrial Revolution, which did nobody no good. Gave Jordan Peterson a lot to talk about, but by and large, we're contending with it to this moment. And, you know, it separated kids from the, the working life of their parents and introduced a lot of alienation there, generationally speaking. That certainly was part of it. The, the rupture that was a consequence of the middle passage, the transatlantic crossing that basically produced 
the America that I'm familiar with, that certainly contributed to it immensely. The insane rate of innovation in technology that your generation is principally responsible for unleashing on the world has gone an enormously long way to discrediting whatever was left of the credibility of older people who can't be expected to keep up with that shit. You know, can't even figure out an obligation to it. Never mind, you know, trying to take advantage of its upside and ignoring the rest or, or what have you, what have you. And so, I mean, I'm saying more than maybe you counted on or that I had thought of at the time, but surely many things have stopped happening. And that cessation of elderhood is the consequence of those things stopping. I'm curious, and I'm just going to sort of insert this into the equation. But one of the things that I've heard you circle around before is this notion of being a, a grief phobic culture. And when I look backwards at some of the ripples that we're, you know, the waves that we're sort of riding on culturally now, I, I can't help but look at and see the impact of us not being able to metabolize trauma, not being able to see the pain that previous generations had to go through or current generations are experiencing. And so hoping that maybe you can just add to that and sort of take your spin on it. You know, how much of a role do you see trauma and, and not being able to metabolize grief individually and culturally playing in this forgetting of elderhood and the, the sort of disrespecting of the role and the, and the diminishment of the role entirely? I would just correct slightly the the quotation attributed to me, I never used the term grief phobic. The formulation always was death phobic and grief illiterate. Okay. And the reason I'm underscoring that is phobos is the Greek word for fear. So death fearing, certainly that's true. But grief illiterate, because no, I'm not sure that really there's a lot of fear where grief is concerned in the dominant culture. There's more disability where grief is concerned. And the reason I call it illiteracy is because I'm strongly recommending the idea that grief is a learned something, not an instinctual, you know, every time there's a grief-soaked moment, you will automatically grieve. Nothing could be further from the truth. So we're really, as a culture, grief-disabled, right? And it's not like, you know, you went to school and your teacher made sure there was grief class. Never happened. You know, you were spared from the notion in biology that biology included you. It was a life cycle of a frog and it ends. But the notion that the life ending of a life cycle includes you, you're exempt from in school because you're, quote, too young to understand endings and on and on it goes. Well, grief is a, is a capacity. I mean, I'll probably never tire of making the claim. It's a skillfulness. But here's the thing. It's not a mastery. In the, in the sense that if you get really good at it, you don't have to do it because you got it nailed down. No, if you're really good at it, you're a practitioner of it. You see, you're still its servant, okay? And that's anybody who's ever gone through a formal apprenticeship knows exactly what I just said. The nature of a formal apprenticeship is this. You may graduate to master status, but you'll never be a master to the master who granted you that passage you will always be an apprentice to that master. And that's, I think, a proper understanding of our grown-up relationship to our capacity to grieve. You may get very good at it, but it will always call the tune. Why? 
because grief derives from the troubles of the times. You see? Now let me come to the trauma thing. It's not surprising to me that trauma sells. I'm saying something a little different than you did about it, right? I understand what you mean about not metabolizing the rest, but I'd really encourage you to consider this. This is a consumer culture, first and last. Every idea is tested that way. I'll snort some of it, see how it goes, right? Oh, yeah. For, oh, yeah. I've been, yeah I, I've been snorting a lot. So, okay. So it's the same with trauma. And you know what? That shit works. It's, it's astounding how much efficacy there is in the allegation of trauma. Okay, so I'm doing this, which I rarely do, because I'm trying to signal verbally and non-verbally that something's going on when it comes to the trauma industry. Something's going on. And let me go out on a limb and suggest what it might be. Are there things that are inherently traumatizing? Of course there are. Well, what would they be? Well, dying for one. Well, where'd you get the idea it's traumatizing, especially universally so? If somebody's not traumatized by their own death, they must be in denial. I guess that's the formulation that you're offering me. But, you know, there are people in this world, not many of them in my culture, but in the world, for whom death is a given. And if it's a given, it is by definition not traumatizing. I'll say a little more, but I just want to put that out there, okay? Are you saying that anything that's a given, that's part of the, let's say, the moral fabric of the givenness of life is by definition not traumatizing? I am with this proviso. Please consider the location of the trauma. The trauma never occurs in the traumatizing thing, event or non-event, whatever it is. The trauma always occurs in the traumatized person. Translation, trauma is a reaction and not an action. Trauma is a consequence of how you engage the thing. Now, the background of the observation goes like this. North America is first and foremost a competence-addicted place. Okay? I'm not saying we are competent. I'm saying we're, we're, we're addicted to the notion that we're competent. And, and that as a goal of life is never really challenged, right? So competence addiction has diabolical consequences when you engage in that part of life that you're not in control of. Think about the last 16 months. How much trauma talk was there? And where did it come from? The fact that people weren't in control of their lives. Wait, are you telling me in 2019 everybody was? And in 2020 nobody was? And so the proliferation of trauma ensues? The answer is, that's exactly what I'm saying, minus the allegation that in 2019, everybody was doing okay on the self-control front. Okay, shit was never true, right? The story is bigger than your ability to manage. I can, I can hear that I'm shouting. <laughs> I do have to, obviously I have feelings about it too, right? Yeah, so I'm fessing no, it's up. good. I'm fessing up. But uh, it's, very, it's very challenging to make this case in an even-handed fashion. Because it more than excites me, it dismays me in the extreme that the real career path of trauma is that it has an extreme buy-in in a population that's addicted to self-determination. Trauma is a direct consequence of the attachment to self-determination. So every time something presents itself that's not your call, the floodgates are open for you being traumatized. So in actual fact, the experience of being traumatized 
is an inadvertent confession. Said, shit's not working out for me right now. Okay, so I have a right to be traumatized. Moral of the story is trauma always proliferates in a culture that has no active cultural practice of submission. And there's no such thing in North America, right? There's no, nobody came to this continent. Nobody's people came to this continent to submit. You understand what I'm saying? They came here for virtually the opposite. What, to be free? No. To oblige somebody to submit to them. That's how a slave dekes his slavery while keeping it intact the whole time by seeing to it that they get a chance to finally on the gravy end of slavery. Right? It's a very challenging thing indeed for a slave in the mind to challenge the fundamentals of slavery and not enslave someone else as the corrective recourse. So, as a result of that, and sort of the grim inheritance about institutionalized slavery and all the rest, one of the things you got going is nobody's a fan of submission. And the, the, the tragic aspect of that is life basically is an ongoing visitation of the unconquerable, right? So what you're left with is a formulation I'm, I'm very pleased I came up with during my days in the death trade. You have this thing you can't do anything about. That's called your dying. And then you have this this remarkable panorama of things you can do about what you can't do anything about. Oh, so that's good, right? No, not if you listen to the formulation carefully. Here's what you can do about what you can't do anything about. Translation, oh, you can do shit till the cows come home, but it will not change the fundamental arrangement that this thing is beyond your voice to master or control or manipulate or change. And that act, that describes accurately most of real life. By real, I mean authentic, right? The authentic, authenticity of life is that it's bigger than your ideas about it. And so learning life and learning how to live is an ongoing act of figuring out the repertoire of submission. Or as Rilke so gorgeously said, human beings are not here to succeed. We are here to be defeated by greater and greater things. One of my favorites. I almost just want to take a moment to let that saturate into my <laughs> soul and psyche and to, and to honor what you're saying. I find myself curious with the notion of, of submission because it is sort of counter-cultural approach to something. And yet having worked with and having, the, having had the honor of working with so many men, I have seen that many, and myself included, this is not, I'm not exempt from this, but the unwillingness to submit has been the catalyst of so many of my problems, <laughs> right? So many issues have been birthed in my life and the life of many people that I've worked with because of a rejection of that. And so I don't necessarily know what question to ask there, but maybe I'll just drop that at your doorstep and hope that you can do something with it. <laughs> Great. <laughs> That's the, the, so far what I'm gathering is that the role of the elder is to just pick up the pieces of, of what us young folks don't know what to do with and then make hopefully some coherent sense of it. <laughs> the tricky thing is to make sure when you look outside your door at my age and you see bags out there, you make sure they're not people's stool samples, which they often are. And that one may have been yeah, yeah, maybe, maybe. So I'm not diving in. Yeah, I can, I can maybe condense that into 
into a what are we what are we missing out on? You know, what what are we missing out on and, and how do we begin to even approach the action, idea, concepts, embodiment of submission as an individual, uh, especially in a in a culture where as a man, I'm like, I feel that that is very counter to how m- many of us have grown up. Surely. Yeah. You know, it's important for both of us to say aloud many times during the course of something like this. This shit's not easy, right? This is not an easy undertaking. We may understand all the words that are being said, but it's a different thing entirely for them to begin to assemble some meaning around them. And meaning is mostly consequence. It's not a condition of you agree, you disagree. That's not where meaning comes from. So there's already an act of submission, right? That if you want something to mean something to you, you better release its stranglehold, your stranglehold on its neck. You don't get to decide what things mean. You work tremendously to inherit the meaning lineage that comes with it, right? So hopefully there's just some degree of respect in that orientation and not a kind of wholesale dismantling or deconstruction and imagining that that's your fundamental right, never mind responsibility, as a thinking person. Well, submission is, you're right, it's a counterintuitive thing if your culture is big on winning. If, for example, your culture is big on limiting how much service you have to provide for how much you can be served. If that's the switch that they've done on you during the course of your childhood, because, I mean, most kids are on the receiving end of service, are they not? So how do you break the habit of understanding that virtually everything is here for you? My grandson, almost four years old, he comes here routinely and he pillages the friggin' place looking for anything that's edible that's growing in the bushes, right? And if you don't control him, there's nothing there, right? So what's the understanding at four? The understanding is, shit's here for me. He doesn't look up and say, Forget about anybody else. I mean, that's not really the alternative. The alternative is, look, it's in the world. You can eat it. It tastes good, but it doesn't make it yours. How do you get to the last one? Why does something have to be yours? Why is that the precondition of the fundamental orientation, how you make the world work for you? Think about, for example, the difference between public property and private property in most urban settings. Private property tends to have a pretty nice lawn, doesn't it? And various other things that signal that somebody's caring for it. Translation, that somebody has a financial investment in the upkeep of it, right? Public spaces? I mean, if you happen to be a city that's hard on its income tax-based luck, that's one of the first casualties. Public spaces are one of the first casualties when urban downturn occurs. Think about what it means. There's no investment in the notion that the public space actually should come first. And we're dealing with the collapse of the old practice of the commons, are we not, with this understanding? That the commons once was the place where anybody who didn't have could be spared starvation, perhaps, or the loss of all their livestock or whatever it is. That's been gone for hundreds of years in Europe, and it never, the best of my knowledge, basically never existed in North America. Right? North America was founded by Europeans who were 
who were bereft of the commons, essentially, and never went back to it as something they could restore because there's so much friggin' land over here. They never restored it. It's amazing, no? When you think about the European casualties that came across here, that the notion was they were going to try to start again, and they loved their freedom and all this kind of thing, you would expect, if they're contending with the kind of collective devastation that the Industrial Revolution visited upon them, one of the things they might have done is come up with their version of some kind of truth and reconciliation commission, whereby some old understanding of what it meant to be a human being, what it meant to be a citizen, could somehow come up from underneath the urban devastation of the Industrial Revolution and a few other choice things. And it, it never happened. Okay. And don't wait for it because it's not coming. Okay. What does it tell you? There was no investment to restore humanity. It was personal opportunity, which is never a restoration of humanity. So maybe all of this is to, you know, come, come back to your, to your issue about the failure to comply with submission. I mean, why would you when the founding story that you're nursed with has an awful lot to do with heroism and standing apart and standing alone and prevailing against the odds and being the underdog and, you know, not part of the 99. I mean, let's be frank, that formulation sounds good when you're marching in the streets, but when push comes to friggin' pragmatic shove and you're given a choice, it's not easy to choose to melt back into the 99 because there's a certain amount of denigration in the formulation. And even though it seems to be visited upon the 1%, the secret denigration, the 99 reserve is for themselves. Yeah, again, I find myself at a impasse of wanting to ask how-to questions. Yeah, yeah, sure. <laughs> right. I think, sure. you know, my mind goes to, in a, in a sort of pragmatic manner, almost like, what do we do with that? Then how do we reclaim that meaning, that responsibility, that communal importance? You know, I hear you sort of saying that we have stripped humanity out of the way in which that we build or breed culture. I don't know if that's true or not, but then I also maybe hear you saying that maybe it's too late for us to be able to re-inject humanity back into that culture. Is that roughly accurate? And if so, what are we left with then? You know, because I think that part of what I see people grasping at is sense of this existential crisis, not just of meaning, but of humanity. And it's, and I think for a lot of people, it is hard to fully take in. You know, I think I said to you on one of our recent conversations, I find that many intellectuals, many people that I respect and admire are sort of saying like, Shit's really bad, really bad, worse than people think. And trying to get people to understand how bad it actually is, is a monumental task unto itself to just sort of wake people up to that. And so if we are going to potentially, possibly re-inject humanity into culture, into community, into all those different parts, like where from your perspective do we begin? Is it with us? Is it with community? Like, I would just love to hear some words on that. Okay. With all due respect to the dilemma and to your formulation of it, it's the wrong question to ask. Not just that it's poorly timed, but it's, its entire ontology is in fundamental error. 
Here's why I say that. The question comes from the dilemma, does it not? You think it's kind of an obvious observation to make. Wait, every question is a formulation of a position with a funny mark at the end of it. Okay, that's what most questions are. They're an articulation of a certain position that's been taken and then a sort of truth or dare thing come in at the back end, right? But so there is an, there is an ontology inside every question. And if you listen for it carefully, it generally won't elude you. This is not a lawyerly thing I'm talking about. It's a human thing. See, I'm secretly telling you how to do it. I'm secretly answering the question that I say should not be asked by telling you this. Now I'm going to continue doing it. Okay, I stopped for a second there. Now I'll, tell, I'll say some more. Every solution that a death-phobic culture generates to its death-phobia keeps the death-phobia intact. That's its survival strategy. Could you say that again? Sure. The, the dominant culture is death-phobic. Okay? But it qualifies things like euthanasia. My country has legalized euthanasia completely. Right? So this must be an alternative to the death-phobia. Why would you think that? Because the culture remains death-phobic after the advent of euthanasia. Why? Because euthanasia is consistent with death phobia. It doesn't challenge it. It doesn't undo it. It's not even an alternative to it. Okay, it's the little man behind the curtain. Now you get to choose when you die and how. Why would you want to choose? Oh, because I want to be in control. Or what? What would be the worst outcome if you weren't in control? Somebody else would control me. Who do you think's interested in controlling your death? Like who's so invested in the gnarly shit of your death? Who's more invested than you in it? Well, they're in the insurance companies. And okay, well, that's the problem in the States. It's not a problem in this country. And yet we have the same crazy understanding that it's my death. My death is a death phobic formulation. Okay. It sounds like it comes from my life. It doesn't. It's not my life either, by the way. It's, it's a loner, right? It's entrusted to me. And guess what? When the time comes, I'm supposed to give it back, hopefully in better condition than I received it, right? Just like the world, right? I'm, I'm not making any of this stuff up. Okay, so the death phobia survives every death phobic culture's attempt to undo it or, or reclaim some sanity or what? Number one. So just take the same understanding, take out death phobia and put in reinserting humanity. I think that's a term you used or something close to that. Okay, so there's the second dilemma with your formulation. I would submit to you, I'm going out on a limb again to make a generalization about this little corner of the world and say, nobody listening to us has had the experience of humanity in culture. It's not like it disappeared an hour and a half ago or a year and a half ago <laughs> or a lifetime and a half ago. Here's what I'm telling you. The thing you're asking me about, nobody who's alive has seen. Maybe we've heard about it in, 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 you know, more exotic places, right? So the idea is if they got it, we can get it. Oh, so sort of like peyote. Yeah, sort of like peyote, you know. It's sort of like ayahuasca. It's here, so everybody's in, right? We're not excluded because it doesn't grow here, are we? Well, does indigenous mean anything to you at all? Because if it does, it grew at certain places and not almost any other place. What does it tell you? It belongs there, right? 
Do you belong there? Well, I'm part of the human family. No. Answer the question. Do you belong in the same place the ayahuasca does? Never mind will they sell it to you. Never mind will they, you know, institute a friggin' shaman industry to serve your demand to be rescued from yourself and your cultural malaise. Never mind all that. But does, does it belong to you? Fundamentally, in a consumer culture, the not very secret answer is yes. So how about this then? Obviously, I'm, I got convictions about this stuff, don't I? <laughs> so how about this one? Where does your humanity come from? And is it yours? Is it permanent? Like once you become human, that's it. You can't possibly lose it or misplace it or abuse it to the point where it's just taken from you, right? Or, or what? Well, here's the thing. We have the word human, okay? Not a lot of agreement about what it means once you start really poking at it with a stick. But if you don't poke at it with a stick, in the Western humanist tradition, it's the default admission that we all make. Well, everybody's human. Well, he's only human. Well, it's human to err. And, and nobody says, is that person human? I mean, the next step is the death camp, I suppose. As soon as you start wondering about who's human and who isn't, you're basically in that kind of zone, right? So nobody's going anywhere near it in the post-Gestapo era. Well, we understand there's a lot of phobia. Why? Because the Western understanding of humanity is so frail, so unexamined, so unachieved, such a flabby democratic understanding that it can't bear any real scrutiny. That's the dilemma. That's why we don't go near it. We just, we just do this. You know, every time the question comes up, we just push it back and say, everybody's human forever. Well, if that's true, somebody please explain to me why we have a word that's human with an E on the end. Because I'm going to suggest something to you that sounds like it's etymology about a language. And it is, but a language comes from somewhere. We have the word humane and we have the word human and they're not synonyms. Okay. It is to say then that humans have come up with the word humane to describe a certain kind of activity or behavior. And there's a closet admission, is there not? And what's the admission? That humans are capable of inhumane behavior. And if that's true, in those moments, how human are they? Is their capacity to be human so deeply compromised by their inhumane actions that it's very challenging to continue to understand them as human beings? Wow. Has something to deal with, no? Especially in an age where inhumane stuff is available in every newsfeed, routinely, almost. That's an obscenity unto itself. Finally, I was driving down the road, and I'm listening to an interview, and it's an author of a book who's got a big, had a big bestseller, now he's got a follow-up, and the the book is about the the near future, and. The very beginning of the interview goes like this. Well, what do you see coming in the near future? The interviewer says, and the author says, well, I don't know if you heard this. They're working on a serum and probably too late for you and me, but not for the generation to come. It's probably going to be available. And if you take the serum, you won't have to die. Now listen to the formulation. That's what I'm saying about attend to the prejudices that are built into the formulation. You won't have to die. 
Translation, what a shitty arrangement we have at the moment, that you are obliged to submit to the termination of your existence. What a shitty thing. It's just not fair, it's not right, it's not just, it's not kind, it's not happy, it's not affirming. The whole thing sucks. If you can fix it, you should. Nobody wonders about that fun, you know, that formulation. There it is. So the interviewer says, so you won't be able to die. So then what do you think that will mean for how we're living? Author says, well, we're going to have to come up with a new word to describe those people who aren't going to die. What word would you give to describe them? Author says, I think we'd have to call them divine. Well, so let it sit for a second. What does he say? The inability, my language now, the inability to die is one of the things that would make you divine. So what is it that makes you human? The ability to die with all of the preliminaries, frailty, uncertainty, undoings of all kinds, weaknesses, etc. And those things that tend to you your entire life. The ending only comes at the end, but all the practice rounds are there. And you practice with your death by learning submission. To, to throw submission on the junk pile of history and claim it's beneath you is to basically doom you to a, a kind of demise that is so meager and miserly and ungiving, so distressed and distraught that it probably qualifies for the word trauma. And the whole thing was self-engineered, self-imposed. Well, I am... Um, Cheers. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I... Uh... I like that I asked some questions that got you heated, leaning, leaning forward towards me. That was, I, I appreciate that. Yeah. Somebody, somebody in the comments just said, damn, I need a drink. <laughs> I hear you. Yeah. So I, I feel fortunate now because I'm going to take the hot seat off of me and I'm going to, I'm going to turn to the questions from our guests today from the sure. people that have been in the audience listening to you and in this conversation. And so we're going to move in just a very different direction. I'll, I'll let you, you know, take as, as much or as little time as you want with any of these questions. Okay, very good. Uh, so Jeremy said, what is your writing process when it comes to creating books and formulating ideas on page? How do you do it? Any tips or rituals that you're particularly devoted to? Yeah, thanks for asking. I don't think anybody's ever asked me that. I don't think because most people don't think of me as a writer. So why would you ask me? I don't think of myself as a writer either. I think of myself as a person who writes. What's the difference? Well, a writer seems to have no choice. You know, it's just basically in the architecture, that's, that's, the, that's a given. And then you articulate the, the tyranny of your inclination as best as you can. I don't have that tyranny inside me. So it's fitful. When it comes to me, it seems to make certain demands and then, and then heads out of town when it's done with me. You know, I'm a backseat pushover when it comes to, to, <laughs> to writing. Makes me sound a little horish, and I'm not sure that that's wrong. Do I have a process? Well, the first thing I would say is do your best never to use the word process to characterize an undertaking where you engage something mysteriously with the unknown. And here's why. The word process, you can't help it. You invoke the word. It has a certain almost predictable sequencing that will just visit itself upon you and carry you along. That's, that's what I hear when I, people use the word process, like death process, virtually the same, right? So do I have things I habitually do? 
when I'm writing? And the answer is yes. I, I take upon myself the rudimentary existence of a monk. That means I strip down not only distractions, but sources of influence, creative and otherwise. I don't listen to anything. I don't read anything. And I contend with the solitude. And it's not easy. You know, if you think about monastic existence, they've withdrawn from the world. Well, they've withdrawn from the world and properly let themselves in for a sequence of ordered life that makes the outside world look like a carnival by comparison. So ordered and rigorously maintained and all the rest. What's going on there? Well, I'm suggesting that the, a creative endeavor needs much more the monastic willingness to submit yourself, there's the word again, to a kind of orderliness than the notion that you are somehow self-administered in this regard. You're serving something, right? That you're not sure it knows how to be born and why it's selected you, you have no way of knowing, right? Your job is to appear for active duty at the appointed hour every day until it's done. Virtually every book I've written is, happens in something like six weeks. But it's a samurai undertaking, which is to say, it would appear to me that I've lived a considerable period of time before those six weeks. So the samurai reference is something like the archery reference, right? Which it takes forever to draw the string on the bow back. By the time you're fully extended, everything's shaking like a leaf where you're wondering, are you waiting? Is there something else? You know, what's, you only get one chance to let go and meanwhile you're shaking like, and, and that's basically the creative visitation. It's, here's the best example. There's a book out there called The Last Temptation of Christ, written by Nikos Katsazakis, same guy who wrote Zorba the Greek. And, and basically the first scene, he's doing a riff on, you don't know it's Jesus. I mean, you know, from the title, but you don't know Jesus has appeared in the very first page because nobody's named. He's walking along the street or the road out of town. And the first thing is he feels wind, a kind of breeze right here. And the next thing he feels is almost an electric affliction in his scalp. And when the, final, when the, the narrating camera pulls back from the image, you realize what's happened is he's been set upon by a raptor bird of some kind and it's talons first in the back of his skull. And this is his translation of the biblical phrase, and the Spirit of God descended upon him like a dove. He does something about the dove thing, doesn't he? Turns it into a red-tailed hawk or, 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 you know, something. I think it's more like that. That's been my experience. And all you can do is, is submit yourself to, to the rigors of a disciplined inquiry. You can't live an undisciplined existence and imagine that you can still produce a disciplined piece of work, in my humble estimation. You submit yourself to what you're proposing to visit upon an unsuspecting public by publishing it. Appreciate that one. Next question is, do endings ever get easier? <laughs> I hope not, man. Because think about what happens every time something gets easier. You might take five minutes of thankful respite and you're on to the next piece of stupidity or larceny like that. Every time something gets easier, it's real psychic or spiritual value to you diminishes. So there is something 
about being contended with and tested in some, test is not the right word. There's something about something being bigger than you that never submits to you, that never submits to your, come on, haven't I been a good guy? All of that stuff. Haven't I put my time in? Like I've already had the hard shit. Like when does it turn the corner? Just as the question says, the answer is, wait, you're talking about that like it's in the future. It has turned a corner. You missed it completely. How did I miss it? You think this is as bad as shit gets? This isn't a, not as bad as shit gets. Come on now. You know full well this is not the optimum of mayhem here. Or you know that it's, the, it's your neighbor's turn to go off the cliff edge, but not yours. Not today. So there's some gratitude, and not just for the grace of God there, but for the grace of God go I. But to understand that in a sane culture, it doesn't mean there's no craziness. It means that the craziness doesn't visit itself upon every citizen in equal measure at the same moment. It's some people's turn and not others. And that's the translation of village-minded mercy. And that's what could happen with this pandemic. I mean, I'm tempted to say, don't get me started on the pandemic thing, but let's just say that the pandemic, among a host of other things, represented to a culture that has no culture, no village-mindedness, the distinct opportunity to re-examine your assumption that you should be free to self-determine because you are facing the fact that your exercise in self-determination literally endangers other people. Literally, the health of other people is in your hands. That amounts to a God function. And are you really going to claim that you didn't ask for it so it's not really there? that you didn't bargain for it so you have no responsibility to it, that your devotion to your self-determination trumps or triumphs over any other possibility. And alas, over the last 14 months, that's what I've seen happen. So this was one of those close calls we'll look back on. Well, I won't, because I will be here. But people are going to look back on these days and say, the fuck were those people thinking? You know, there were so many chances to get it right. Most of them were involuntary. They were just there for the taking. All the signs are that they weren't, they weren't taken, you know, and now we're flooding back to the restaurants. Yeah. Anyway, I, don't, I, don't wait for it to get better. It's not supposed to be better. Okay. PS on the, on the answer would be this. So I worked in the death street a long time. Right. And so people were dying every day, all day long, died in front of me. were dying while I was talking to them, et cetera. Emphasize that to say that's serious stuff. You, be, you best not be frigging around with your ideas in a circumstance like that. You got to earn the right to be there. You know? One of the things I never did was ask people how they were doing, not to well into the proceedings. Why not? Because they had stock answers and the stock answers were all lies. That's what a stock answer is for, to make sure you don't have to think about it, right? But you know, the, how are you? The answer should be, I'm, I'm dying. How are you? Just for starters, you know? So. One of the things I would do instead is establish something like what we've been doing, a kind of tonality to the room. Tune the room as if it were an instrument. Tune the circumstance and the expectation and the sense of time passing and tune it, right? Play it and tune it, which I was pretty good at by the time I was done there. And then, and then ask them how they're doing. And more often than not, they would say, pretty good considering. And I'd look at them and they'd look at me, their eyes will widen. 
You say, how'd you make me do that? How'd I make you do what? How do I, you make me say that I'm okay when I'm clearly not okay? So wait a second. I didn't make you do anything. Okay. You said that. So you innocent enough question. But let's observe the most important thing here, which is what? That you just said that you can be dying and be okay at the same time. You have an obligation to do both of those things when they come to call at the same time. You have no obligation to choose between them. Why am I saying that in response to the question that had been asked? Because we have no obligation to wait for no, a time of no endings in order to get good at endings. <laughs> That's not how it works. You don't get good at endings by being spared them, even to the point where your effort to try to learn endings itself ends from time to time. You know, if you pay attention, you're always in school. You always get a chance to get a PhD in the way it is, but you got to pay attention. And as soon as they stop, things stop getting hard. Your attention span starts to atrophy. The sad truth is, when shit gets hard, your attention span starts to atrophy too. So there's work to be done to understand that things getting hard and endings coming at you is not you being punished. It's you being treated like a grown-up. And if you're not used to that, then get used to it. In other words, learn how that the world is treating you like a grown-up, what it asks of you. I know it's kind of harsh language, but, but yeah, I told you where it comes from. You sit with that many dying people, you don't have a lot of time for people who are, who got hangnail concerns. You know what I mean? I'm not to diminish anybody's life. But I'm just saying that there's, there's stuff that's real and there's stuff that's in, in the line trying to learn how to be real. It's a different order of thing, right? That's, that's hopefully the respect that was inside my answer to the question. No, I could, I could certainly feel that one. I could feel the respect in that. Yeah. Anonymous question. How do we find, how do we, how do we find, build and grow healthy and loving partnerships in modern society with so much hyper individualism present? It seems that even in love, we have lost our deep ability to relate to one another because of our severe disconnection from our soul slash deepest self and spirit interconnectedness to all else. <laughs> so how to question, right? They're just coming all the time. <laughs> It's not that I don't understand the desire to have some kind of program that if faithfully followed will deliver on what's being sought. I'm just saying, just pay attention to the instinct. It won't fail you for you to recognize that that instinct is relentlessly trying to get you off the hook, off the meat hook of being a human being in a troubled time. So either you're a fatalist in this matter and you've no regard for the, the coincidence of you being born now. Or if you're looking, if you're on the lookout for some kind of meaning, you don't have to look any further. You were born to a troubled time. You could consider that affliction or you could consider it assignment. Okay, so with that in mind, let me see if I can speak to the question. I've written a book about matrimony. It's an attempt, among other things, to contend with some of the questions that have been asked. I'm not sure if it'll ever see the light of day, right? But there's a book coming out at the end of the month. This is here. It's called A Generation's Worth. So I wrote it in the first three months of the year, this year. And there's a chapter in there about matrimony, which I subtitled The Bone House of Love. Now, bone house 
is a literal translation of an old English term for the body. So I'm suggesting in there that the, the incarnation of love is matrimony. It's not the only one, but it's certainly one. So I would I just answer the, the question that's been asked, not in the terms of its request this way. So I'm in a party. It's probably the last party I went to. It's a long time ago. And I don't get any invitations at all. But I was at a party and I met a woman and we're talking when I used to know how to do that. And she said, so have you found somebody? Look, if I'm at the party, I'm talking to you. You know what the answer is, but never mind. Let's go through it. And I probably said, how about you? She said, well, I know what I'm looking for. And I just haven't found it yet. So really, she said, I got a list. Have you? You know what's on? You could probably give it to me by heart right now. I could, she said. Wow. And so I'm kind of dumbfounded by this list and the authority that's behind the, the formulation of it. I said, because I'm, I'm hoping it's based on some kind of experience. I said to her, you ever been in a relationship with anybody with these qualities? Oh, yeah, she said. At which point I'm thinking, so what are you doing sitting here talking to me? Like, where is he or her? And then I said, with whom? It was a bit, you know, unguarded. I said, with whom? She said, all my girlfriends. So what does it tell you? That the list prevails over the life. So the list is not constructed with anyone in mind. The list is there instead of the person. So how do you end up with somebody who's approximating the qualities that you're looking for? And the answer is, you never hook up with that person. Why not? Because the person doesn't exist. What do you mean they don't exist? You too perfect? No, no, no. It doesn't exist because you don't know how the person happens, but I do. The person of your list is not created by you finding the right person. It's created by that person trying to find a way to be with you. And their act of trying to find a way to be with you over the longer haul either turns them into someone that approximates that list or doesn't. And then one of two things happens. You either give up on the list in favor of the person, the actual human that's in front of you, or you go back to the list in hopeless submission and forego every human possibility or approximation of that list. My recommendation is go with the human and use the list, the back of the list for a laundry list or shopping grocery thing and then, and then burn it. I'm going to say we're going to, we're going to have a, a column on the website. It's just going to say Jenkinson's dating advice. Dating advice. Yeah. <laughs> the truth is we're speed dating all the time. Oh, no, come on now. You know, you, you might be happy at home. Okay, let's say you are. But the truth of the matter is you're just out and about and there's a certain ongoing kind of this. And what's happening? Well, you're entertaining the possibility that will never come to pass. I'm not talking sexually here. At any number of levels of a sense of engagement or fulfillment or completion or what, you know your current arrangement falls short of whatever fantasy you can imagine in that regard. Right? It does. That's what being a human is. is how to learn how to live with less. Right? And so you're speed dating. But you got to do it fast, right? Because you're driving along or you're flipping through the, your emails and shit. So how to fess up to that, not how to stop doing it, how to fess up to the fact that you're doing it all the time. And one of the ways to do it is enough already with the list, because the person you're moderately happy with right now didn't invent that list for you and has no obligation to resemble it. 
You see, you have an obligation on the other hand to be at least frank with them and tell them, listen, you know, one of the reasons that we're having a hard time from time to time is because you don't resemble the person I had in mind. <laughs> and see if your gig will survive that confession. Goodness. Okay, thank you so much for your time. And as as always, when does the when does the book come out that you were speaking of? When is that launching? July twenty eighth. So what? To less than two weeks or something. But let me and thank you for the for the kind acknowledgement. Let me say goodbye to everybody who's still listening by doing a very brief reading from the very end of the new book. The sage is. I was talking about the consequences of Native people going to residential school at the end of this book. And lo and behold, it's in the news between when I wrote it down and right now, lamentably so. So it acknowledges a certain circumstance, which I'll pick up at the very end and then translate what I think the story or the news might be for understanding of what elders should possibly be to us and for us and among us in these very days. And then we'll say goodbye. So the government announced an acknowledgement of their culpability in the matter of native residential schools some 10 or so years ago. And there was a companion announcement that a fund had been established to recompense the survivors and their families for the lost childhoods and for the carnage. All the survivors need do is formally apply for their grief pay. The rest of the story that I'd like to tell relies on anecdotal stories that I've heard since. I may overstate the breadth of the consequence that came next, but with official recognition and with the government's mea culpa and with the grief grant all in the open, there was an alarming spike in the rate of suicide amongst the aging survivors of residential school. Now, what they endured in the schools, only they know, they and those of their tormentors who are still left. The consequences for their ability to live a family life, well, only they and their families know. How then to understand that after a life of all of that, the last straw was the apology and the payday? How is it that the long-awaited vindication of personal pain amounted to the unendurable and the unlivable in a way that the pain itself never did? Well, something like that awaits us now. When the powers that be tell us that it's better now, that we can go back to normal, many of us won't. Many of us won't be able to. Many of us will have lost track of normal. We'll mistrust what normal will do to our memories of acute isolation and the beggaring of self-determination. Many of us will have seen things in ourselves or in our close kin or in our friends that we will not be able to look away from, that will be at least as bad as the confinement was. And we won't believe what it's done to how we see things and what we seem capable of now. Or worse, the rest of the parade will go on as if the whole thing was no big deal. So the elders, those of them left, will need to show us over and over what deepened by diminishment really looks like. They will be the frontline workers of the armistice that's coming. They will be the essential workers of the all clear. Thanks for your listening. Thanks for your time. Thanks for the call. 
Thank you so much, Stephen. And uh, yeah, for everyone that's watching, thank you so much for joining. Thank you so much for your time. Be well, and we'll see everyone later. Thank you.